Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. Diversifying the teaching force and providing professional development on implicit bias. We talk to the author of two books on these subjects that represent more than 20 years of her research. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. The United States had the third highest child poverty rate in the world back in 2018. And here in Connecticut, this often unseen situation that affects many families and children can lead to problems in the classroom, leaving educators struggling to best support children living in poverty. And how that also impacts learning as well as educators' own biases, assumptions or judgments that may be transmitted in their teaching practice or workplace. Teresa Boulay is a professor of education at Eastern Connecticut State University and has co-authored two books dealing with the socioeconomics of education. And I caught up with her recently to talk more about her research and her two books. Teresa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Writing one book in itself is enough. You've done two, which is incredible. We're going to be talking about both of those during the course of the interview. So I want to touch on the the first book out of the two called The Economic and Opportunity Gap, How Poverty Impacts the Lives of Students. Tell us a little bit about that. The the book is uh, aimed at educators, families, anyone involved in education of young children or pre-K-12 or pre-K through college. Historically, I think there's a term that's been used called the achievement gap to describe students who are students of color or students who have varying identities who are not doing as well in school or on standardized testing or assessments. And I like to call that the opportunity gap because students of privilege have a lot more opportunities, whether that's through universal preschool, opportunities that start from the very, very beginning of their lives and all the way through events, different activities through their school system, you know, and And so uh, certainly more affluent school systems have a lot more programs and things for students. So there really is an opportunity gap. They truly just have less opportunities than their more affluent peers. What was interesting as part of your research and the information you know that I'm reading here is that according to a database company called Statista, in 2018, the United States had the third highest child poverty rate in the world, which mm-hmm. is incredible for a country that yeah. seems to lead in so many other areas. Mm-hmm. It's, it's true. I think a lot of people don't know that statistic. Some places uh, indicate that we're second in terms of rich countries in the world. Some places have nearly 45 to 50 percent of their children living in poverty. For instance, here in Connecticut, in this area, in Wyndham area, about one in every three students live in poverty. That's, you know, around 32 percent. If you go into Hartford, we have about 46 percent of our students living in poverty. So, of course, you know, the segregation or the disparity, like Connecticut has one of the greatest disparities in the 
country. We have a lot of students living in very high-income homes, and we have a lot of students living in low-income homes. So yeah, it, it is surprising to many people, but it has been true for some time. And what effects does that have, obviously, you know, the socioeconomic situation? What effects is that having, obviously, on these young people? Students come to school with less experiences, less opportunities, less opportunities to preschool, which is fundamental. We know in early childhood education that those birth through five years truly are the building block years. They're really important. Students not only learn academic areas, but they learn socialization, emotional intelligence, how to get along with others, how to cooperate, and just learning about different different people, um, interacting with different people. So without universal preschool, a lot of the students that we're talking about don't have any preschool experience. So they come to kindergarten with very little exposure to any of those things, exposure to people, exposure to academics, exposure to a lot of experiences that maybe their families, if they were more affluent, could afford, like museums and things like that. So there's been a number of research studies that show that um, as soon as children can talk, we can identify the achievement gap. So we look at vocabulary and language. And as early as two years old, we are looking at the opportunity gap starting where students who live in more affluent homes have a lot of experience and exposure to families with more uh, more time to talk with them, more knowledge of how important that talk might be. So we can track this opportunity gap and, and the effects of poverty on children back to toddlerhood. And just give us a sense of some of the things that the book actually helps you know people with, because clearly you, you've written it for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so just give us a sense of some of the things that it can actually, you know, it, it picks up on and and help people with. Mm-hmm. One of the things we know is that there's a lot of shaming that goes around on around poverty. So one of the things I think you can help people with is just the awareness. I mean, knowing the poverty levels, knowing the data, but also just, you know, knowing how this might affect these students. So very simple things like not asking family members to send in money for field trips. There's a lot of shaming that goes on in school policies, across programs, across school systems, like free reduced lunch is highly problematic often for students who are low income because they they actually have different lunch sometimes. Sometimes they're in a different lunch line. I mean, we have heard even recently superintendents or school principals wanting to call social social services because uh, their uh, children's families own maybe as little as $10 for lunch. Children missing recess because they don't have, you know, boots or coats or things like that. There's a lot of shaming that children experience, you know, in schools around school-wide policies. Also thinking about We talk a lot about the term hangry, and I think we've all been there before. We all know when we're hangry, we are uncomfortable and and not the most agreeable. And I think a lot of times when students come to school without their basic needs met, and that's just not food and, and, you know, sleep, but also safety, feeling loved, getting all all of those basic needs met, they're more inclined to act out or have behavior issues. And I think one of the things we want educators to see is that that is, it's not about the child. It's and uh, it's about the, the situation. So to step back a little bit and look at the conditions and ask questions and listen and observe and think about what might be going on that might be causing the child to act this way. And I think that is not just important for us. And, and one of the most discriminated policies we have in school are our discipline policies. Schools, uh, students of, of color or uh, students of varying identities are more disciplined, more expelled, more suspended from school than any other students. So these early behaviors or simple behaviors do sort of bleed into the discipline 
interdisciplinary system, and that becomes problematic. But also just to think about students and shame, because, you know, I would identify myself um, as, as feeling bad if these things kept, as, instead of the conditions around me are not okay, I'm not okay. There's something I'm doing that's wrong. And these sort of discipline or behavior issues start, you know, really early on. So it's a a lifetime of experiences for students as they go through the programs. Clearly, these are things which uh, have been, you know, they're historic, but also, you know, we've uh, all been, you know, living the last 18 months with COVID as well. I mean, has this just highlighted those cracks mm. in the system even more? Absolutely. I think we're even more uh, concerned about the opportunity gap. I mean, students who are uh, living in more affluent homes are able to maybe, I mean, clearly COVID was a strain on all families, but they're able to have their parents parents home or family members home with them. If they're not home with them, maybe a grandparent or uh, those families could afford babysitters or things like that. So, you know, students living in, again, we have almost 50%, almost half of our students living in low-income homes. They don't have the same, didn't have the same opportunities during that time. So I imagine the, the academic lag or the opportunity gap would be even greater. The other thing I want to pick up on as well is that you're the president of the Connecticut chapter of the National Association for Multicultural Education, or NAME, a non-profit organization that advocates for equality and social justice through education. Has this also so like, helped you in you know, the research and you know, in these books that you've co-authored as well? Because clearly this is a big issue for you. I mean, you don't become president of, uh, of a chapter of an organization like that unless you've got some real genuine concerns. Yeah, I, this is my 21st year here at Eastern, and my concerns around social justice education or multicultural education, my work in the area has goes all the way back to my dissertation from UConn in 2001. So this is my professional life here, and I feel like these books are, in a way, manif- manifestations of that. I've spent my entire career looking at and doing research around varying identities or members of underrepresented groups and how they experience uh, education, the in- inequities or inequalities of, in education. Uh, and I think that goes way back to my mom and, and the values that she instilled in me around social and racial justice. In fact, around economic justice, I can just remember m- very many incidences as a child where my mom really wanted to point out to me that people living in poverty are not there by choice. You know, generational poverty is the number one predictor of poverty. And my mom really made it clear to me that there are many conditions that have created these situations and uh, to withhold judgment or assumption. This this is part of who I am, and it's definitely been a big part of my professional life. As we say, COVID obviously has impacted everybody, um, no matter who you are. But do you see some of these situations as, has any of them got any better, or, or are they cyclical, you know, so like they, they get better and then suddenly it drops off again? I mean, what's the situation that you've been seeing? Are there patterns here? Around poverty or social yeah. justice? I think, well, in terms of a, overall, I think a pattern that we're seeing in recent years since George, George Floyd, we've had much more... Um, of an awareness and emphasis on, you know, Black Lives Matter and the racial injustice and social injustices in this country. I think that there has been a lot more uh, interest and focus, particularly of more affluent white people, people of privilege or with the power. And uh, unfortunately, I think we're seeing that subside a little bit lately, but I'm going to do my best to continue to call attention to these areas. Certainly, poverty levels are not getting any better in this country. And certainly, I think uh, social justice or in- injustices 
cases are not getting any better. Clearly, the inequality in equity in our school system is not getting any better. In fact, we're more segregated now than we were before, after Brown versus Board of Ed. We were, we're highly segregated in the state of Connecticut. Most of the high poverty schools are over 90% or within, within that range of students of color. So we're, we're extremely segregated, especially in the urban settings. Although here in eastern Connecticut, we have a lot of rural poverty, and I want my future teachers to be able to think about how rural poverty is different than urban poverty and what kinds of needs do the families have who live in rural poverty. And again, we have a lot of uh, homogeneous um, school systems here in rural Connecticut where they're predominantly white but have a lot of poverty. And so, you know, clearly there's bigger distance, longer distance to the grocery stores and things like that. Then we don't have public transportation like you do in urban areas. Let me just ask you this question, which may seem obvious. Are people surprised when you tell them this? Because it's not always visible, is it? I mean, you know, we look around and these things aren't always immediately visible to us. So when you, as a professional, as an educator, you know, when you tell them about these things, when you tell either teachers or, or, or you know, or, or people, are they surprised that here in Connecticut there is this disconnect so much? I, I think they are. In one of my courses, in a social studies course, actually, I have my students uh, examine a town, a more affluent town that is connected to or next to uh, a town of, of higher poverty, where there's higher poverty rates. And they're always surprised by not just the poverty rates, the segregation uh, culturally and economically. They're surprised by the lack of uh, materials or experiences those students have opportunities to. I have them examine and do a compare contrast between the two communities. The way uh, I think a lot of people are surprised or don't know how schools are funded, and clearly that's problematic if schools are funded through tax dollars and you have higher poverty areas where people are renting and and things like this. So um, I think there's a lot of aspects of this that surprise people. And what I want my students and, and teachers, to future teachers and in-service teachers to be able to do is to be able to think, just to be able to be aware of these issues, because I think awareness is everything. And then they can look for those teachable moments or those opportunities um, to be able to support students and their families who are living in poverty. The other book, of course, is Implicit Bias, an educator's guide to the language of microaggressions. Tell us a little bit about that, because, yes, we are well aware that we live in a world, sadly, that is biased in so many ways. And even some of us, or many of us who think that we're not biased, we are. We just don't always acknowledge it. So tell us a little bit more about that book. Yeah, I think that's the thing about implicit bias is that it often, it's insidious. It is often contrary to our beliefs. So implicit bias is, is something that we don't even know that we are experiencing thoughts or, or behaviors or ideas or stereotypes that we have that we're not even really familiar with. And if we're not familiar with them to begin with, we're certainly not familiar or aware of how they might be transmitted to the people around us, and in this case, students and their families. So tell us a little bit more about, again, in the implicit bias books, uh, some of the the things which, again, people might be surprised to read about. So I think, again, we were talking about self-awareness. I think that self-awareness is really important. And I think once we become aware, we realize things that that we had no idea were actually happening or experiences that we had no idea that our students of color, our students with varying identities were experiencing in our, in our schools. When we're talking about implicit bias and microaggressions as the language of implicit bias, I think we're really to focus on um, intent over impact most often. And I really firmly believe that teachers and all educators have 
really uh, positive of intent or purpose for what they're doing. And it's about the microaggression is about the impact. It's about how it lands, the impact that it has on that particular student or their family. And also, I want to point out that we're also talking about school policies as well. So it's not just teachers or, or educators in the school system who might say or do something that lands as a microaggression, but also school policies. And these are things like discipline policies and school lunch policies, like we were talking about, or absentee policies, like having awards for students with perfect attendance. These these are microaggressions. These are have a negative impact on students of poverty or students of color who are struggling to get there for a lot of different reasons. So, yeah, so one example might be that uh, you know, a, a teacher might go out of her way, and we all know that teachers spend a lot of their own money on, on things in their classrooms, and so they might go out of their way to buy snacks or something and put those snacks in their desk for students who don't have snacks. But that one child who has to walk across the room every day to get that snack, it's sort of the walk of shame, right? They they have this feeling like, you know, it's obvious to others or, or things like that. And, and, and so the intent is a good intent, but the impact is, is um, you know, may create shame. Um, with the child. And also uh, another um, area, I mean, we've uh, spoken obviously about uh, students of colour, but also um, LGBTQ plus students and families. Talk to us a little bit about that, because you touch upon that. There is a, a chapter in the Implicit Bias book about that, because, again, it's another big issue. It's a very sensitive issue, not only for the students, but obviously for their families as well. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, so in the book, we look at um, students of all different identities who experience microaggressions more than others. So whether that's race or ethnicity or linguistic diversity, not just students who hear this, the, uh, the, the phrase, oh, you speak English well but also students who maybe identify as Latinx and their last name is Rodriguez and they're asked, oh, you don't speak Spanish. You know, these are microaggressions. Gender microaggressions like, oh, um, are you sure you want to go into sciences or are you sure you want to be a doctor to a female student or or even just calling on more male students during math and calling on female students during that time. Also economic microaggressions like we were just talking about, like for instance, a student losing their recess because they didn't have the boot or they didn't get their homework done. And there's probably many reasons why they didn't have their homework done because maybe their mom is working two jobs and and they're home with their older brother or something. So backing up and thinking about that. Also ableism and ability. And, um, you know, students with varying abilities, whether that's physical or cognitive, developmental, experience a lot of microaggressions in schools. And then, of course, we think about family microaggressions. So many times students will, uh, maybe a student with two moms or dads might, might be told, oh, no, you must have a mom and a dad, or if you have two dads, you must have a mom. Everyone has a mom. But LGBTQ students and in early childhood elementary were really talking about gender identity, gender expression, and also having maybe, as I just said, um, same-sex families, like two moms or two dads. But as children go up in the middle school and upper upper, uh, high school level, students on the LGBTQ spectrum receive more bullying. So we go well beyond microaggressions, but have uh, uh, an extremely negative experience in schools. In fact, students, uh, middle and high school students on the LGBTQ LGBTQ spectrum are often students who engage in the most high-risk behaviors or drop out of school because of the, the experiences that they're having. And you've got personal knowledge of this. Talk to us about your sister who passed away. Uh, well, my sister passed away of AIDS, and while she was a cisgendered, heterosexual young woman, she was in a relationship with a man who was HIV positive and did not disclose that he was HIV positive. 
So my sister found out that she was HIV positive in 1990 and died three years later in 1993. And at that time, there was a great deal of unawareness or lack of awareness of what AIDS was and what it was capable of doing to the human body. And so my sister experienced a lot of shaming and a lot of, I think, an experience very opposite of what someone would if they were dying of cancer. There was this sort of belief that she did something to deserve her experience because I think often we think about people who are HIV positive or with AIDS as people who engage in high-risk behaviors, and clearly that's not always true. But because there was very little awareness of the, of the disease, um, she was uh, she was not touched or hugged. They were they had hazmat suits on. They would literally sort of push the food tray across the room. And I can remember many times where I was called out of my classroom. I was an elementary school teacher at that time because they thought she would pass away that day, but in fact she had many more months to live. So it was a really difficult experience because it was a death sentence. And I think one of the issues with AIDS today is that we still believe the same thing. I think that there are three really quick responses to people who are diagnosed, or three most common responses today, and one is that this is a death sentence, right? Another is that, you know, I'll never have a healthy relationship or a family, our children, you know, and another, I think, is that um, I I don't want to tell anyone. I'm not going to disclose this information. So clearly there's still a lot of stigma today. I don't know that we've made a lot of progress. We've certainly made a lot of progress in the medical area and how to treat people with HIV or AIDS, but the stigma is still there. Yeah, I mean, and we mentioned this because one, obviously, as I say, there is a chapter, as I say, in the book of about LGBTQ+, but also it's the 40th uh, anniversary of the first uh, diagnosed case of HIV in the US. And like you said, it's, it's staggering 40 years on that other than there is clearly no cure and, and that in itself is just so tragic is that, like you said, the stigma is still there. We don't seem to have learned or there isn't enough information out there that maybe we've stepped back too much and just, you know, sort of like pushed it to, you know, on the back burner almost. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think um, one of the things we need to do is find a better way to disseminate that information because clearly it's not true anymore. People with HIV AIDS, because of the antiviral treatments that they're receiving, are living long, healthy lives, and maybe they don't know that information. And so we have to look at ways to disseminate that um, information, but also I think we have to look at this as an access issue. When you look at statistics today with HIV AIDS, you'll see that a large number, I think the majority, are people of color. And so uh, do, we, do they have access to health care? Do they have access to the knowledge? Do they know that this information is out there? But when you combine this lack of maybe access and dissemination of the knowledge with the stigma that still is here, I think there's a lot of reasons why people would also, even if they're aware of, of the antiviral treatments or the medicines that are aware that are available to them, won't, won't receive them. I mean, all I can say to you, Teresa, is it's been absolutely great talking to you. We could talk and talk and talk about mm. these issues. They're certainly not going away at any time soon. But, you know, two great books for people that they can uh, they can get hold of. And obviously, we're very grateful that you've taken this time, as you say, this manifestation of a life's work here to create these two great uh, resources for people. And these are conversations which clearly we all have to have, no matter mm. who we think we are as individuals. It's been a pleasure talking to you and thank you for your time for joining us on Connecticut East. Thank you very much. Wake up and text. Text and eat. Mm -mm. Text and meet up with a friend you haven't seen in forever. Hi. Oh, hey. 
Text and complain that they're on their phone the whole time. Uh. Text and listen to them complain that you're on your phone the whole time. Uh. Text and whatever. But when you get behind the wheel, give your phone to a passenger. Put it in the glove box. Just don't text and drive. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Winter is coming, so think about preparing your plants and trees for the season. Green Valley Tree LLC can help prepare your trees to withstand heavy snow, ice, and wind with cabling, trimming, and removal. We also do pruning. In fact, we do it all. Call Green Valley Tree LLC today on 860-234-4041 or visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region recently. A first-of-its-kind survey of the health and human service needs of Connecticut's LGBTQ community was published recently. Advocates say the findings show there's still work to be done to ensure the community is safe and has inclusive access to essential services. Emily Scott from the Connecticut News Service reports. The report was released by the LGBTQ Health and Human Services Network, a subcommittee of the Connecticut Commission on Women. Among the findings were that two-thirds of respondents reported concerns about access to health care, including that the services would not be LGBTQ-friendly. Patrick Dunn of the New Haven Pride Center says this creates barriers to receiving health care and that he hopes this data can inform LGBTQ-affirming solutions. So every day I can see people walking in the center looking for food, looking for housing, experiencing discrimination in healthcare. It's such a relief to have this kind of information that we can literally go to funders, we can go to legislature, we can go to different bodies, we can go to donors and say, hey, here's your proof, look. More than 3,000 Connecticut residents completed the survey, with the largest number of respondents coming from New Haven, Hartford, and Fairfield counties. The survey also found that 68% said they had someone to talk to about LGBTQ-specific challenges. I'm Emily Scott. Drug overdose deaths across the country are on the rise. The Connecticut News Service's Eric Tegadif reports on a new pilot program that's kicked off in Connecticut to help clinicians better treat injured workers and opioid addiction. The collaboration between the Yale program in addiction medicine and insurance company The Hartford includes training for health care providers to help them both identify and treat acute and chronic pain and opioid use disorder. It also focuses on preventing stigma among medical professionals. David Feline of the Yale School of Medicine says because chronic pain and addiction are both highly stigmatized, they can result in people not seeking treatment. For instance, medications for opioid use disorder are highly stigmatized. However, they also decrease death rates by 50%. And so we want to make sure that people understand these medical conditions, the role of these medications, how effective they are. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention data reveal the number of overdose deaths during a 12-month period ending this past April topped more than 100,000 for the first time ever. In the Connecticut Examiner this week, deciding who is entitled to use the New London State Pier emerged as a key question in a local salt distributor's ongoing appeal of a state permit needed for the pier's redevelopment. Attorneys for the Connecticut Port Authority and Department of Energy and Environmental Protection argued during a virtual hearing recently that Superior Court Judge John Cordani should dismiss road salt distributor Driven's appeal, which seeks to overturn a permit deep approved in August that would allow the Port Authority to fill about seven acres between the two existing piers as part of its redevelopment into an offshore wind hub. 
driven which operated out of the state pier from 2014 until the Port Authority forced it to leave on February 28, 2021 to make way for the redevelopment project, argued that Deep's approval of the permit cost the company its ability to use the pier and millions of dollars in revenue as a result. In the day this week, in May 2016, former utility cooperative CEO Drew Rankin handed out Kentucky Derby tickets with printed prices of $907 and $405 to the dozens of attendees in the cooperative's annual strategic retreat at Churchill Downs. None of the participants in the Connecticut Municipal Electric Energy Cooperative Kentucky Derby trips ever questioned the cost of those tickets, Rankin testified in the federal criminal trial of Rankin and four other defendants accused of conspiracy and theft in connection with four trips to the Kentucky Derby and two to a luxury Greenbrier golf resort in West Virginia that cost $1.2 million. Rankin, former CMEX CFO Edward Pryor, former Norwich Public Utilities General Manager John Bilder and former CMEX board members James Sullivan of Norwich and Edward Demuzio of Groton face felony charges of conspiracy and theft from a program that received federal funds in association with the trips. In the Norwich Bulletin this week, Jason Bakulis and his wife Maura knew five years ago when he became the head football coach at Norwich Free Academy that circumstances could change once they started a family. After a long bus ride home from Woodstock Academy earlier this season, Bakulis realised that time had arrived. Bakulis stepped down as the Wildcats head coach recently. Jason and Maura now have three young sons, including twins, and Bakulis's responsibilities as a husband and father made it the right decision to leave the sidelines at this time. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at connecticut-east.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East this week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Thank you for listening.